This is Tribal Malfunctions Podcast. Tribal Malfunctions is a cyberpunk novel set in 22nd century Boston. It is written by Chang Terhune and read by Chang Terhune. So come, join me as we step into this world of Tribal Malfunctions. Welcome once again to Tribal Malfunctions uh, Podcast. My name is Chang Terhune, although my mommy calls me Charlie. Um, And this is episode six. Woo! We got here. Uh, Skipped a week because I had a um, dreaded space flu. I had some sort of horrific cold uh, made talking pretty rough. So you might still hear it in my voice, but that's okay. I am down and ready for episode six because episode six... It's got it going on. A lot of stuff happening and things coming together. A lot of weird things. I hope you're digging it. I am definitely digging it. Um, and we'll get right to it. As always, um, well, the music's by me, actually, under my name, Cathode Ray Tube. And you can get the music online at therealcathoderaytube.com. So if you want to catch up on the next five episodes, uh, here's your chance. Go right ahead. Okay, all set. Sounds good. Oh, the other thing, too, you know, there's cussing, because in the future, people got swear words. Some new ones, but a lot of the old ones that we know. So uh, don't play it for children and stuff like that. So settle in, and uh, we'll get going on the world of uh, tribal malfunctions, futuristic gangs, technology, and uh, the power of independent trucking. Travelog 6, welcome to the Mind Farm. As the rising seas overtook the town of Hull for good, it was thought the historic village was gone forever, never to be inhabited by humans again. While other wealthier towns could afford walls that contained their borders and held the seas back, Hull flailed and eventually fell. At first, the news covered every single house that the sea claimed, but after a while, when whole streets and neighborhoods slid into the ocean, barely anyone noticed. The few hardy residents who held on to their homes were seen as madmen and women, fighting back against Mother Nature, whom everyone knew always won. Little did anyone suspect they would become millionaires almost overnight thanks to another so-called madman, Dr. William Rahim Mukhtar. Dr. Mukhtar, grandchild of Syrian refugees and founder of Mind Farm, 
saw something there on the eroded beaches and broken homes of Hull's shores. With the help of significant overseas investments, he bought out the remaining residents for up to 100 times the worth of their homes. Then he used more of that same investment to build the sprawling complex of buildings and facilities that are now a shining example of the human mind put to its best and greatest uses. The advertisements show it all, row upon row of happy people relaxing in recliners or hospital beds, attended by equally smiling and friendly staff. Only a momentary shot of the cumbersome and seemingly invasive neural interface equipment is shown. Otherwise, it looks like nothing more than a giant holiday camp of content, if somewhat sedentary, vacationers. To those who use Mind Farm services, though, these people are far from lazy. While their bodies rest in a relaxed state somewhere between coma and sleep, their minds are hard at work. Using Dr. Mukhtar's revolutionary methods, each mind is turned into a computer linked to dozens, even hundreds of others, to make a living supercomputer. Corporations then rent time on this supercomputer for a variety of purposes. Some run massive calculations for universities and research firms. Others use them as the intelligence behind security for corporations and even countries. Controversy surrounded Dr. Mukhtar from the moment his hull buyout was announced and didn't end when the benefits of Mind Farm's workforce were announced. Issues of human rights, medical ethics, and morality have followed him at almost every step of his business. I had a chance to sit down with Dr. Mukhtar at his home in Duxbury recently to get to know this master of minds. Introduction to Lawrence Crowe's interview with Dr. William Brahim Mukhtar on CTTN's Remote Viewing with Lawrence Crowe, January 10th, 2105. Chapter 6, Occupied Territory Arnest knew he wasn't unhappy and considered his blessings during the subway ride into Boston a few days later. He loved his family. Menea was great, and he loved his kids. His mother-in-law, he tolerated most of the time, but he understood she was still mourning the death of her husband. Arnest worked hard to make a better home than the one he grew up in, which consisted of him, his sister, and his mom, plus a string of boyfriends leeching off her while taking up space on the couch, like it was some kind of game show. One after the other, each bring on him and his sister, until finally Anna Maria joined the army and got shipped off to Florida, New Texas, Caracas, Oslo, or Bangkok. Once in a while, a card would show up, an email, or even a package from wherever she was, the wrapping torn like she'd had to fight her way into a post office to send it. Once his sister left, it was just Aras against the long line of slugs that ended and the final one whose name he forgot, remembering him only as the carcass. Life as a heavy boy was bracketed by his home life and life at the garage. Until one day, there was no going home. There was only the Holy Roller. 
The garage saved his life when everything else fell apart. Mr. A took him in. Maybe he knew about Aura's secrets, and maybe he didn't. And he took care of Aura's, kept him working, and eventually made him a partner within a couple of years. And here was this thing tugging at him like a voice, or something knocking at a hidden door somewhere, like that little girl Anna on TV, always looking for a way out or a clue to what she was doing there in that enormous mansion. Was it leading him into the city on a minor detour from a visit to the state offices that he could have easily taken care of from the garage? Maybe, but the thing with that Yuki Core hauler was beyond a simple diversion now, having graduated to weird, reoccurring phenomena. It was distracting, but it did directly affect his business, so as the owner, he had to check it out. Or so he told himself, as the train rolled on beneath the cold streets of Boston. He wondered if he would have to tell Manea, or maybe Wendell, first. Wendell might already know, while Manea left most of the day-to-day -day business to Aris, preferring to handle the books as she had since working for her father. After learning about something like this, Manea would be flying off the handle. Baby G crossed his mind then, and he immediately crushed the thought away, but it returned like a rerouted hauler. Baby G was his first and most fiery relationship he ever had, not, not counting his sister or the shouting matches with his mother. Future Pop and Baby G had crazy sex and partied hard with the rest of his crew in the all base. But years and age revealed it to be teenage stuff, a crush. He had a wife now and more importantly a partner. Manea was mother to his children and the garage. The baby G broke your heart, man, he thought to himself, nodding as the rumbling train passed under the exurbs of Boston. True that, he said aloud, knowing no one heard him through their headphones. Ara sighed and caved into nostalgia, wondering what life would have been like if baby G hadn't duped him. Would they be together? Probably not. Would he still be down and heavy? Hard to say. His was going to be a heavy boy life for as long as he could remember. There were a few heavies in his neighborhood, lounging around Bay Tower's courtyard. Aris grew up idolizing these older heavies with their battle-scarred faces. When he was old enough, he got in good with them and was allowed to hang around the old all base, listening to their stories of holding down entire city blocks. Stories of trespassing crews trying to annex territories made Aras think they'd been at battles as fierce as Pearl Harbor, the Crusades, Tehran, Madrid, or any other legendary skirmish. A secret life then, he thought, working at Holy Roller during the day and looking forward to the night of donning the gear, joining in with a group that meant something to him. In truth, it was more likely he'd be arrested by now than serving time in a chempen out beyond Winthrop or something worse. Being down and heavy wasn't always rosy, and back in the day he knew that. There were just kids back then doing crimes and the ever-present danger of police catching them, which of course was part of the thrill. Did he even need to get the heavy boys involved now? He could have beefed up his security cams and seen things clearer than they ever could. It would have cost more than the lunch spread he fed them at the paddock for a bit of information, but was it worth it? Was he really pursuing some nostalgia trip? Did being heavy meant he stood for something more than anything he believed in these days? Looking at the other passengers, a thought blossomed in his head, like an oil slick and a crystal spring. What did he stand for now? 
making sure haulers carried stuff up and down the coast from duh to duh, as the old man said, serving businesses and people he'd never meet in a million years. Every year, millions of other people's dollars and tons of cargo passed through his garage on its way elsewhere, and all he did was make sure it got there safe and sound. What did that mean? Ara scratched absently at his scalp, his hair a couple inches or so of spiky black with a touch of gel in it. It was getting long for him and just a little close to what Manea called shaggy. Any day now, she'd complain about it after some half-jokes. He'd stop for a haircut after getting his permit straightened out. As the train slowed, he thought of the old days, when he'd buzz his scalp bald and clean every day with the precision of a surgeon. Future Pop would have laughed at the almost curly fuzz Aris wore on his head, calling him a Barney, and maybe even holding him down and shearing it off for kicks. Later, Aris left the barbers, admiring his shorn head in a nearby empty storefront window, razor cut clean on the sides with a tight half inch on top. He looked smart, and Manea always liked him with a clean, shaven neck. Aris tightened up his collar against the cold and looked around. There, above the ancient roofs of a block of historic three-story storefronts, rose the twin Bayview Towers, where he grew up. Back Bay Barber wasn't too far from his old stomping grounds. Aris hadn't spoken to his mother since he left, and she hadn't bothered to contact him either. He felt only a minor twinge of emotion at this. Walking into the cold, sunny day, he paused at the corner of Harrison and Neeland, no longer fooling himself that he happened upon the area by accident after the superfluous visit to the permit office on Federal Street. There was only one reason to be out here now. For the first time in 15 years, Aris took a deep breath of the cold, metallic-scented air and strode into the depths of his old territory. He walked east, away from the human bustle at Chinatown's outskirts. He had always wondered why the old name remained, since the Chinese had, for the most part, either headed back home to take part in the third era of renewed prosperity, or fled into the suburbs. Now it was full of other Asians and South Pacific Islanders, different cultures mashed in, around, and on top of one another. Somewhere in there, Aris could find his mostly Filipino and Samoan heritage in four stores in at least three restaurants. Despite the shining sun, cold winter winds thinned foot traffic, which Aris didn't mind. He moved along, taking in the area around him, a lone, casual stroller, while everyone else seemed to be trying to get indoors as fast as possible. At the intersection of Surface Road and Neeland, pedestrian traffic nearly disappeared. The landscape shifted from hundred-story office skyscrapers with restaurants or storefront offices in their ground floor spaces to grungy, nondescript warehouses and skeletal concrete parking garages. This part of the city wasn't just a no-go at night, it was a dead zone. Nothing good happened here after 6 p.m. for the last century and a half. The old warehouses were locked up, the small offices closed, the historic Tin Cup Diner served office workers, cabbies, and the nearby fusion plant staff until it closed around 2 p.m. Even his old crew left this area well enough alone, not that there was even an old crew left. 
Usually only scrubs, rhino users, or other junkies ventured down this way. Four blocks down, he came to the corner of the JFK Expressway and Neyland Street. There, Aris noticed the peculiar shuffling, human-sized mass of rags and worn clothing near a nook where the massive concrete overpasses intersected. Here in its shadows, a small group of people camped in between the margins of the inhabited city and a few shacks hewn from discarded lumber, building materials, and even a few nanny-processed walls and roofs. The person turned and Aris caught sight of a pale, misshapen face and a blistering, ulcerated arm distorted by prolonged rhino use. He grimaced involuntarily, knowing this was someone who'd only been using six months and, unless they quit the hellishly addictive drug, was perhaps another six months from their eventual death as their muscles stiffened until they could no longer move or breathe. Aris turned away with embarrassment when the person threw an angry gesture at him and shouted something, a bloated middle finger thrust out from the torn rags. Across the busy intersection, he walked into an enormous concrete building marked with a large black T contained in a gleaming steel circle. South Station was the hub of all municipal transportation in the metro Boston area from which all trains, subways, and buses arrived and departed. Once up the exterior glass-encased stairwell to a rooftop public parking lot surrounded by a 15-foot-high chain-link fence, Aris walked across the full lot until he was overlooking the Fort Point Channel. To his right stretched the convergence of a dozen train tracks emerging from the depths of South Station on the left. Beyond the tracks flowed a stream of cars that led into the depths where Interstate 93 ran under the city for a few miles, and deeper still beneath that ran the Wormway. Spread below him was the back end of the David Ortiz Memorial Heavy Hauler Operations and Facilities Station, Boston's node on the Wormway. The Wormway was an almost totally self-sufficient, self-contained system requiring little human intervention. But when it did, people had to get inside. Any human entered and exited the tunnels here for maintenance or emergency operations, say in the case of the Wormway's fire suppression systems failing. Aris didn't see heavy boys here, or even near Washington Street where his crew once held their domain. But of course there weren't Boston heavies there anymore. He felt stupid at having taken such a long diversion for what was clearly becoming a distracting obsession. He told himself he'd just take another look around before returning to the Holy Roller. The Ortiz building was devoid of openings but for ventilation ducts, a few small windows at the top, and some skylights. Four roll-up doors big enough for a hauler to pass through abutted a large concrete loading dock. He looked down towards the far end of the lot, over the train tracks, then kept walking until he could see beyond the lot's exit ramp to the back of the Ortiz building. There he saw the same thing, black metal walls with heavy-duty garage doors every 40 feet or so. He was about to turn away when he saw one of the rolling doors open with a distant clang. Two men stepped out wearing heavy black coats shining in the sun. Aris zoomed in with his glasses. As the image magnified, he could see them clearly, and a small, sharp hiss escaped his mouth. They stood in the shadow of the building, smoking and standing immobile. 
Aris noted the white antique lettering on the left breast of their coats and their white sneakers with red stripes. New York, he said aloud. Behind them, something was going on inside the Ortiz building. Some heavy boys were crowded around green crates about as long as a man. One was open, and those standing around it were hefting long black cylindrical objects from inside, as if showing them to each other. Aris shades, with their consumer zoom functions, could only see so far. He could only guess, but wondered if they were inspecting some kind of weaponry. As he snapped a couple pictures with the shades, a low humming made his heels and pants cuff vibrate. Aris turned to see a police cruiser alighting from above, lights on, but siren off. The window rolled down as a dark-skinned MBPD cop in shades leaned his head out towards Aris. How's it going, guy? Oh, okay, fine, said Aris. Fine, actually. Good to hear. You need help with anything? Said the cop. Is this lot B-17A? Aris said, frowning and looking around. I just came back from Bridgeport and, uh, nah, said the cop without laughing. I'd be confused if I just left there too. No, lot B is one level down. Like the sign says, this is lot A. Oh, okay, officer. Aris made his way back to the stairwell. Thanks. You'll bet. Yeah, have a good one. The cruiser rose back up into the sky, nearly silent on its rotors. Aris shuddered. The cop's timing was too perfect. One level down, he walked fast to the other side of the lot and looked over at the Ortiz building again. The garage doors were closed, and no one was outside. Without delay nor diversion, he went and caught a train back to Somerville and the garage. I don't know what the hell is up with you, but you better knock it off, Menea said. What? said Aris. She'd startled him while he was staring absently at his display. What did I do? You heard me, she said. Her eyes were locked on her own deck, glowing slightly in the reflection. Every so often, she looked up at him with little love in her eyes. Sorry, I was just... You've been moping around for a month, and it's getting to me, she said. Menea rose from her chair to refill her coffee from the newest of several coffee makers, which sat on a shelf at the far wall, underneath another shelf, bowing under the weight of a dozen overstuffed parts catalog. The coffee makers ranged in age from left to right. The first five dated from the old man's time, while the last two were installed during Aris reign. It was holy roller tradition to keep them there, even after they served up their last drop of coffee. Aris wasn't one to break with tradition, nor mess with superstitions. I just wish you'd tell me what's going on, Aris. It's nothing, baby, he said, shuffling some papers on his desk. I, I just... Look at me, she said now standing next to him. He looked up at his wife, wavy brown hair tied up in a bun at the back of her head. She wore that gray quilted vest she always did in cold weather over dull brown work pants and boots. Is there someone else, she said, in tones just north of a whisper. What? he shouted. You heard me, she said. Menea, he said, and rose to embrace her. She pushed him back with the coffee cup, spilling some on his coveralls. He winced as he wiped it off. I said, you got another woman? She asked again, looking up at him with her large brown eyes. No, he said. Seriously? When the fuck would I have time to fuck around? I don't know, she said, 
looking at the bays, then into her coffee. You're just distracted, then you're at the paddock a lot, and Manea, he said, in what he hoped was an even mixture of firmness and love. I got no time to be messing around. Really? When the hell would I? Manea listened, eyes on her coffee. Secondly, why the hell would I? Ara stared until she finally raised her eyes to his. She let him come closer, moving the coffee cup to the side as he embraced her. She was unyielding, nor did she push him away. You're the mother of my kids. A whole lot of Armenian hotness to boot. Got that Yerevan Yoni action going on. Oh, you are full of shit, Aristotle Aguilar, she said. Her hard voice began to soften around the edges. Full of something else, if you'd care to examine the evidence. Oh, gross, she said, but let him press into her. Don't want nobody else, Manet, he said. I got you. Better show me, then, she said. Right here? Right now? said Aris, pulling her in closer so her breath escaped her in a quick, laughing gasp. Okay, drop the blinds and... Whoa! Wendell said from the doorway. You two? Aris laughed and broke away from Manea. She blushed and returned to her desk. The boss and the office lady? Wendell said, shaking his head in mock surprise. He beckoned Aris over towards him. I'm shocked. Why, this'll be the talk of the... What do you want, Wendell? said Aris, pushing him out the door. Wendell led Aris to his repair bay, where a hauler with a bum rotovator had him stumped. Aris showed him how he'd repair it. Wendell nodded. Never figured that'd do it, Wendell said, and clamped the rotor back into place. Okay, I got it. Uh, so hey, can I ask you a question? Sure, what? What's going on with you? Aris swore, then sat on the slot's edge. The fuck is with everyone today, said Aris. Can't a guy just have a mood without... Something's up, said Wendell. No. You're the second person to ask me that today. Aris gestured back at the office. Well, why do you think that is, said Wendell, looking slightly maniacal in the glare from the hanging light. I, I, I don't know, but... Okay, fine, said Aris. It's gonna sound weird, but just listen, okay? Aras told Wendell everything he'd discovered, up to the strange cases seen at the Ortiz building. He left out the inclusion of the heavy boys and meeting at the all base. When he was done, Wendell was nodding, running a tongue over his teeth, under his upper lip. It is weird, I'll tell you that, he said. But I kind of thought the same thing. So you think something's happening to those haulers? Hauler. Singular, said Aras, and nodded. Singular, right. Thought that, too. When I got a look at it, I checked out the neural mapping frame. Aris stared at Wendell. You did what? he said. That's kind of illegal, said Wendell, with his odd grin. Like going into a hauler and... Yeah, yeah, fine, said Aris, waving him silent. Plus, the two goons showing up at the door, said Wendell, frowning and wagging his head from side to side. Something is up. Yeah, I think so, said Aris. Gonna go to the cops, said Wendell. I don't know, said Aris. I kind of like to keep them out of it, if possible. Afraid they'll ask how you know so much? Nah, I got the repair records and the mechanical report. That and the break-in is enough for it to check out. So what then, said Wendell. Long story, I just, I don't know, said Aris after a pause. As he stood, he banged his head against the low support strut. Wendell laughed. Being out of the bay is too long, he said, patting Aris' shoulder. 
So used to sitting up tall in that fancy office of yours. Shut the fuck up, said Aris, and laughed as he left the bay. The next day, he sat in the paddock's back room with nine knives and tie-tie. The boys were inhaling a plate of sandwiches while Aras relayed what he saw at the Ortiz building. When he was finished, Nine Knives nodded, belched, and wiped his mouth with his napkin as if he were hastily cleaning up spilled blood. Yeah, sounds about right, he said. Couple guys seen more NYC boys hanging around lately. What's all Papa got to say about it? asked Aras. Nine Knives shrugged. Says it's weird. I don't get too much face-to-face -face with him except when I got something from you. Nine Knives plunged a fork into a bowl of runny coleslaw, spilling white liquid on his coat. Well, maybe you can tell him that those crates might have something inside to make this shit real. No shit, said Tai Tai. What do you think's in him? Guns? Missiles? No idea, but shit's real enough to let the cops in on it, said ours. That got Nine Knives' attention. He looked up from his food, a sliver of cabbage dangling from his lip for a moment before he sucked it in. You'd pull some stupid shit like that, he said. What I saw means NYC isn't up here looking for a South End condo so they can go antiquing on the weekends and raise pugs. Aris grabbed a pretzel and snapped it between his teeth. The heavies glared at him with anger and confusion. Why cops, though? asked Tai Tai. We thought she was down and heavy. Was is right. Ain't no more. Sympathetic, sure, but I just don't think your crew can handle what these guys got, especially since there ain't a Boston crew to deflect this. So what do you think they're up to? Nine Knives asked after a lengthy pause. Military-grade weapons? In that space? They're looking to do something major. Like what? Asked Tai Tai. No idea. Something bigger than a territory grab, though, said Aris. He checked his watch. Oh, shit. I'm late. My wife's gonna be pissed. The heavy boys snickered. Yeah, laugh all you want, said Aris. Keep laughing until you pudpuckers are too old to pull up your own zippers. Be dead before that, Nine Knives said to Aris back. Better hope not. Get your asses out of here. The owner doesn't like you hanging around without me. Man, that's just prejudiced, said Tai Tai. Heavy boys don't get no respect, said Nine Knives. Maybe, said Aris slinging on his black coat. Except you assholes broke two chairs last time. Just testing the gear, said Nine Knives. Tai Tai laughed. They exited the restaurant into the cold gray daylight. Aris nearly collided with Wendell as he strolled around the corner. Wendell stared at the heavy boys, then looked at Aris. Later, said Aris. The heavy boys shrugged and departed. Wendell watched as they walked back towards the tea station. When they turned the corner at the far end of the block, he looked at Aris. New hires, he said, chuckling. I feel ripped off. Big Al, I mean, the original old man, just interviewed me in the yard. Didn't offer me so much as coffee or a donut. Nah, it's... The right words escaped Aris, like his misty breath in the cold. Heavy boys, huh? Not usually known for... No, it's... No, I... Aris found his tongue getting in the way of what few words he could form. I... I used to run with them. Seriously? said Wendell. Aris nodded. Wendell looked up at the corner they'd just turned, then back at Aris before chuckling. I can't really see it, but... It was a long time ago, said Aris. Thinking of joining up again, said Wendell. No, 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 said Aris. 
I asked them to do something for me. Oh yeah? said Wendell. Like what? Runners? Mechanics? He laughed again, harder, but with less humor. I know they're good at standing around being heavy, but most paperweights don't eat at greasy spoons or wear fusion reactors in their pants. It ain't that. Aris sighed, then explained his involvement with the heavy boys, including the guns this time. Wendell nodded as he smoked his cigarette, occasionally offering Aris a drag. He didn't seem to mind the cold while Aris was shivering and hopping from foot to foot on the sidewalk. So this is why you don't want the police involved, huh? said Wendell when Aris finished. Pretty much, said Aris. And you were a down and heavy code man once, huh? Aris nodded. Wendell bent over, then guffawed. What? said Aris. The fuck is so funny? It's just it's you, the heavy boy, back in the day? Yeah, said Aris, trying not to be offended. How's it funny, huh? It's funny. And me with killer be killed since I was in grade school. Seriously? said Aris. Yeah, said Wendell. About 15, 20 years. Left a few years ago. Shit, you was down and heavy and I was rolling the bones in the same place in the same time. Damn. I wonder we didn't kill each other on the streets one night. Mr. A would have been all kinds of pissed. Aris looked at skinny, tall, and dark Wendell in his blue surplus coat with his furry collar, his black jeans and antique sneakers that were white long ago. It was hard to imagine him in the all-white, spotless flight suits and skull makeup worn by members of Kill or Be Killed. Harder still to imagine him involved in their vicious fights and legendary Fudun rituals in their endless war against the Metro Boston Police Department and rival gangs. Honestly, said Ars, wouldn't have pegged you as one. I mean, you're black and skinny, but... Wendell suddenly dipped and slid around Aris, with moves alternating between liquid and jerky, as if he kept losing and regaining muscular control. He snapped and wagged his hands in Aris' face a couple times. Then Wendell was again standing, still on the sidewalk, smiling, but not out of breath. The fuck was that shit? A mix of Tai Chi, Capoeira, Varmakalai, and Jeet Kune Do. Aris shook his head. I used to hate it when you fucking guys would start that shit. Creepy as fuck. Then you'd drop a short EMP and the street lights went out. Had that glow-in-the-dark paint on and it was just like, fuck. And here I was thinking heavy boys weren't phased by it at all, said Wendell. Always standing there, acting all cool and Asian. That's right, said Aris. Can't be truly down and heavy unless you're little yellow and squinty both laughed. So why you leave? asked Aris. Wendell shrugged, his face clouding temporarily in a flattening of his semi-permanent smile. Saw too many of my boys die. Family got locked up. At a certain point, I couldn't see the point. Aris nodded. And you? Aris shrugged. Was it the big Battelle in Boston about 15 years back? The thing between heavy NYC and the locals? Wendell said. Aris nodded. Ooh, I thought so. That was bad. You really started getting into it at the garage around then, right? Yeah, kinda, said Aris. Look, the thing is, no one knows. No one. Menea doesn't, and... She doesn't, said Wendell. Damn, how come? Uh, I don't know, said Aris. 
Maybe because of the old man? I mean, there's the whole secrecy thing, but I just never figured out a way I could tell her and not have it be messed up, you know? Yeah, so, baby, that was a great dinner, and did you know the one I was once a heavy boy? I know, right? My ex-girlfriend fucked us over and got my boys killed, so that's why I'm all quiet about this shit, and... Aris trailed off. Wendell handed him the nearly spent cigarette, then chuckled. Whatever, he said. You're in business now. You the old man. That's right, said Aris, pointing a cold finger at Wendell. Best remember that. Wendell smirked. They both knew he was indispensable. Seriously, can you keep it to yourself? I mean, sure, said Wendell. Long as you keep my former affiliations on the download, too. Absolutely, said Aris. They shook hands after Wendell flexed a K or BK mudra, and Aris responded with a heavy boy sign. Better get back so Manea can yell at me for being late again. Where were you coming from anyway? Izzy's, said Wendell. Yuck, said Aris, grimacing. You really like that shit? Love it. Why you eat there, Wendell said, jerking an elbow back at the paddock's ratty awnings. You like some grease with that grease? Love it, said Aris. The men laughed and walked back towards the safety and warmth of the Holy Roller Garage. And there you have it, episode six of Tribal Malfunctions, chapter six, Occupied Territory. What's going down in that Ortiz building? What's up with those NYC dudes and those green army crates? Who knows? Well, you'll know when you tune in next week, get a little more, learn a little more about what's going on with these tribal malfunctions. Until then... Peace, love, and namaste.